we at the Nasty Woman Club pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the Mianjin land. We acknowledge that we are on the stolen lands of the Yarraga and Turbul people, whose sovereignty was never ceded. This land is, and always will be, Aboriginal land. This episode of the Nasty Woman Club podcast contains discussions around domestic violence. If these conversations are triggering, please contact 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-RESPECT. Hello everyone and welcome to the Nasty Woman Club podcast, your go-to platform for all things intersectional feminism, or as I like to call it, ScoMo's Worst Nightmare. Those of you that are new to the show, I'm your host Demi Lynch, and those of you that are regulars, welcome back. Thank you for tuning in again to the podcast. On today's episode of the show, I will be speaking with Tarang Chola. I have been a fan, a follower of Tarang for quite a long time now. For years, I've admired his career, his work, his advocacy, and I've admittedly have been planning out this interview way, way before I even asked him to be on the show. For those of you that may be confused with this, people that may know me, people that know me well, know that far too often I will delay sending out interview requests to people that I admire because I fear that they're either too busy, they'll reject me, or worse of all, they'll ghost me. So, to have Terang instantly reply to my interview request with an oh my god, I would be honoured, that response just instantaneously made my career, made my year, like, to have someone that you admire so much, that you appreciate so much for the incredible work that they do for women across the country, to have them just say, I would be honoured, that's just, yeah, mind-blowing, honestly. So, I'm just going to get right into the interview, honestly, because I just want you to all hear me attempting Try Not a Fangirl. Which I think I did successfully. Obviously not so much now. But anyway, I really, really hope you enjoy my chat today and enjoy me trying not to be a nervous wreck. This is Terrain Chola. Thank you so much for coming on to today's podcast today. I really do appreciate it. You're very welcome, Demi. Thanks for having me on. I've been actually wanting to message you for a really, really long time to get you on a podcast, I have to admit. But I just keep thinking like, no, 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 no. He has a lot of stuff to do. He has a lot of stuff to do because like I've just been a fan of your work for God knows how long. I think ever since I started my platform. So it's a really big deal for you to be here. So just big, big thank you. No, thank you. I've got such a... You know profound respect and admiration for everything that you put out into the world and particularly the stuff that i get to follow on social media and see we're in different states so you know we've never actually met in person but it's it's lovely to be able to talk to you today and um also thank you for everything that you put out there and uh and all that you've done like i've learned so much from nasty women club and i'm consistently learning and being exposed to to things that make me reflect and and question and understand so thank you no, oh, thank you. So we're going to get right into it with this podcast because we do have a lot to talk about. And I think the first question I really want to ask you, this has been something that I have been wondering is you yourself, you're a man, you are a big activist and advocate regarding violence against women. And the sad reality is we do not have many men out there that do what you do. I wish we did. I wish I could just be like, oh, yeah, he's just, you know, just a, just another activist that, you know, calls out um, violence against women and issues about that. But there really isn't a lot. Mm. I know it's a big question, but in your personal experience, is there how can we change this? How can we change this that men, more men can be part of this important conversation? Oh, that's such a phenomenal question. I mean, I have to answer that, Demi, by giving context to why I started doing it in the first place. And I um, spoke out in a public capacity um, following the murder of my little sister, uh, Nikki. That was that was the catalyst by which a lot of the ideas that I hold and the, and the sort of ideologies that I was raised in and the family environment that was cultivated by my parents, a lot of that 
was put on a public platform following Nikki's murder. You know, I grew up in a very gender equal household, more or less, particularly given, you know, South Asian background where there are certain ethnocultural things that get brought up in conversation around um, treatment or mistreatment of women generally or, or any um, other minorities. And so it was following Nikki's murder that I spoke out about it without any semblance of a plan or without any semblance of an idea of where it would end up or that it would become such a defining pivotal moment for me to speak out about. And so I think one of the things around why men aren't as actively engaged is that uh, collectively men and myself included in this, we don't always recognize or understand how remarkably different the lived experience of women is. You know, it's very difficult to uh, be what you can't see or be what you can't understand. And I think that works both ways. I think that works for women and people of all genders feeling included and seen and represented appropriately and adequately in the mainstream. But I think it also works the other way that men aren't given or offered or supported to adopt ideas of manhood and speaking out that don't fit the norm. You know, that men are, men are conditioned, boys are conditioned, I should say, from a very young age that you don't, quote unquote, dog the boys. You don't mm. do things that make other people question your masculinity, question your heteronormativity, or in any way make you associated with anything other than the dominant paradigm of what it means to be a man. And I think that a lot of the work that's being done now is regrettably still done in that rubric or that framework that is the lens by which a lot of stuff is done and what i mean by that is like even when we talk about things like men's mental health we do so often from a lens of like maintaining the hyper masculine idea of manhood you know we would we i think what we need to see to get men involved is greater opportunities and affordances for boys to express the full gamut of human emotion and I think the more that we see and condition that behavior and normalize that, that boys are as diverse an identity as other groups can be, the more I think we'll see boys grow into men that find it comfortable to talk about these things. Because I think, and I have to put a, a very big caveat on what I'm, what I'm about to say, mm -hmm. I think that the world is genuinely unsafer for women and other groups. But I think that the world is not safe for men who defy the norms of what it means to be a quote unquote stereotypical male. Mm -hmm. And I think the more that we make progress towards that, the more we will see boys talking about issues that affect women and people of all genders. I think we're starting to make that leap when it comes to boys opening up about mental health and those sorts of challenges around say substance abuse or misuse, those things are sort of, we're getting our head around it as a community, uh, particularly in the West that like, hey, we can, you know, we can talk about this, but I don't think we're getting to the point where we're creating an environment where boys are having conversations about how their lived experience differs from girls and women, right? And how that, how they can be part of the conversation to solve some of the problems that are the product of boys, um, you know, boys entitlement and, and men's privilege. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in your own personal experience then, because as you said, when you first spoke up about Nikki's murder what was then the reaction then with the the men in your life like from you know your close relatives to even the strangers on the internet or you know acquaintances and friends like what was their the men's reaction then to you doing this because yeah as you said like it is there's just not that much that the conversation's not being had around men right now what was their reaction to when you were bringing this conversation to topic? Oh, what a great question. I think there was a mix of probably emotions around it. Mm. I know from like my, you know, from the, my parents, from, from dad in particular, he's a very quiet, considered man, you know, like he wouldn't have taken the path that I took. Uh, his way of dealing with Nikki's murder was different to mine. Uh, 
Yeah, and I think that for me, speaking out was part of my own handling of grief and part of my, like, you know, healing process. And the reaction was mixed, you know. There were people who I could tell, you know, in wider groups, not in my immediate family or even my extended family, but just the wider groups, that, like, there were people with whom I developed stronger relationships, male-to-male relationships, because we we had, like, like-minded views on... Uh, the patriarchy, misogynistic thinking, sexism, and then there were other uh, there were other men in my life with whom I sort of lost touch. And then, you know, seven years now since Nikki's murder, I can adopt a degree of hindsight and reflect that it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just luck or you know or chance that th- those falling out kind of experiences happened. It was a product of different viewpoints on the role of women in society or um, gender relations, things like that. So the response was really mixed in, in, and in the best possible way, it sort of affirmed to me what kind of men I want to spend more time with and what kind of man I would like to be, you know, because I'm very conscious when having this conversation that I adopt a degree of privilege. You know, I'm a man in a society that whereby men are privileged. I also have other things. I'm university educated. I am tall. I, you know, all of these things matter. I'm a man of color. That sort of, you know, changes things a little bit. I also have a name that's not like Tom or Matthew, you know, uh, and I come from a migrant background. So there's lots of different kind of things. And that's why I think intersectionality is so important, you know, as a general concept, because it's like we, we have to be able to see the individual and all of the unique characteristics that make them up and then understand how privilege and discrimination impact on them, you know, so that we can actually make um, policies that support people. We can actually live in a society where a community is, is advantaged by people's unique characteristics being brought to the fore rather than being something that is too difficult to deal with or lumped in the too hard basket. And this whole experience, like, you know, first, Nikki losing her life or having her life taken from her, but then seeing how men around, uh, you know, me in all capacities, whether family or extended family or just, you know, acquaintances, it was a really interesting excursion into how a lot of men think about women, men, people of all genders and how they sort of look at the world without them having to tell me without them having to say anything, you know, it was really like, uh, it really brought to the fore that when we talk about concepts like victim blaming, for example, they don't happen out in the ether. They're not something over there. They're things that people in our lives actively think, even if they're not expressing it. I think it's just really great what you're doing that because these conversations with men, they need to start being had. And I just, I still just find it so interesting because we have so many well-known advocates out there that have been calling out violence against women, um, abuse from, you know, Grace Tame, Brittany Higgins and Chanel Contos. And there is still, and obviously there also is an issue as well. I've, I've spoke about this previously about how there's still little woman of color, obviously in the part of those conversations at the forefront, but there is just, there's just limited men that are calling out. Do you think men also seem like it is still a women's issue that they don't that they will because you know how there's so much of this cancel culture that we live in right now which there's obviously pros and cons to it do you feel like men are concerned that what they say is wrong so they'd rather be quiet and not say it like how do i say it they would rather not say anything than say something and then get cancelled or get called out for what they say if that makes if that makes sense at all what i just said at all yeah no no i think um <clears throat> excuse me i think that's a really good question i i think i can answer this in two parts firstly i think that uh there there are definitely women of color who've been campaigning since forever mm-hmm. i think that one of the one of the sad realities of life in australia is systemic institutionalized ingrained racist attitudes you know, primarily beginning with attitudes towards First Nations women and then going on from there. So there are brilliant First Nations women who've been campaigning. There are women of colour, there are migrant women who have been campaigning since before all of the names that you mentioned, you know, but they don't get the due um, deference and they don't get 
on the front page of newspapers. Mm-hmm. And yep. to the credit of all of those three campaigners that you mentioned in Grace, Brittany and uh, Grace Tame, Brittany Higgins and Chanel Contos, is that all three acknowledge that women of colour are so crucial, migrant women, women from diverse backgrounds, women with disabilities, LGBTQIA plus um, community, all sort of factor into our response around inequalities and, and men's violence primarily. And so I think, you know, they, I like that they do that because I think that they are in a position where people will listen to them. You know, and so, for example, Chanel Contos, when she speaks about being from a, a, a privileged background of going to a wealthy private school in Sydney, I think it puts into context that, uh, that, that she acknowledges where she's from and then she speaks about how other people don't get the opportunity to be seen or heard or valued in the same way. And I think that's really important. I think it's really important that they recognise that because I think there have been campaigners in previous years who haven't necessarily recognised that we all have degrees of privilege and discrimination, you know, and and I I think it's interesting because, and this goes to the second point of, of my response around men, is that I don't see having privilege as necessarily a bad thing, you know, like we all have degrees of privilege and disadvantage. It's more what one does with the privilege that I think is most important. You know, like say for example, if you are born and you get the opportunity of having a brilliant education, whether through the public system or the private system, whatever, right? And then you go on to say university or, you know, TAFE for higher education and you get to do something like a professional vocation that you'd like. And then you, and it comes with certain privileges. That's not a bad thing in and of itself, right? But if you then use that to harm other people, you know, or to discriminate against other people or to engage in practices that diminish or downplay other people's contributions to society, that's, you know, that's the reckless behaviour or that's the negligence or that's what's harmful to people. But necessarily having privilege isn't a bad thing in and of itself. And I think that's something around the position that men occupy when it comes to this conversation is, firstly, I think... um, there are men who are afraid of speaking out because they're fearful of being cancelled or doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing. Um, But I think that that's the minority. I think the majority of men don't speak about this because they are not necessarily totally cognizant of how systemic the issue is. You know, often we think of, you know, as men, I say we, we will often be conditioned to think of violence against women as, um, you know, men who spike women's drinks, who uh, commit acts of extreme sexual violence, like rape, right? Um, murder. We think of like the, the true crime end of the spectrum of violence against women, but we don't think of the harassment, the discrimination, the catcalling, uh, the gender pay gap, we don't think of those issues as having any uh, bearing on our lives or our degree of complicity in the system that enables that. And I think that prevents a lot of men from speaking out because there's a lack of awareness and education. I think the fear of being cancelled is in the minority because most people aren't in a position to be cancelled. You know, the cancelling occurs, if it does at all, of people in positions of power. Then you have football players who have, you know, credible allegations of um, sexual violence brought against them, some of whom, you know, have their day in court and are found guilty of, of whatever they're charged with. And yet they continue to occupy front and centre in mainstream Australia. And they're all generally straight white men who are very good at sport, mm-hmm. you know. And they, I think, you know, I, I for one don't, like the idea of cancel culture at all I, th- I think it's I think it's redundant because it doesn't allow for the part of the human experience that is learning and growing you know like I grew up in a time where uh, not everything was on the internet you know like I, re- I remember playing around as a kid and I, I worry about children now in the sense of like if everything is documented and can be then taken out of context later to harm a child's growth or development all in the name of like 
cancel culture, how would they really benefit from that? I support that accountability. Uh, and I think that if someone does something that is harmful to other people and they are then held accountable for their actions, I don't see an issue with that. I don't see a lot of people who should be held accountable being held accountable. You know, so for example, yep, exactly. there are musicians, there are musicians who continue to release music. And I'm thinking of Chris Brown. And everyone seems fine with, uh, with Chris Brown or others. And no one even talks about the fact that he, that there is no question that he did all of the things against Rihanna and others that he's been accused of. And yet people just seem to be like, oh yeah, we don't even talk about that. And the conversation that I would like to see, which is because I, because I think cancel culture is, is not going to get us anywhere um, because ultimately we'll just be like every single second person will be like, oh, we're cancelling so-and-so, we're cancelling so-and-so because of something from five years ago. The conversation I would love to see is people we love and admire or whose music we listen to or whose uh, art we consume can and do and have done horrible things. You know, like that conversation, I think would be far more fruitful and beneficial because it would take away this understanding that that has for too long don dominated mainstream discourse around men's violence, which is that it's other men doing it. You know, it's like it's monsters or horrible men. It's not everyday men or it's not even exemplary men. You know, like let's use a Chris Brown example, right? Because I brought that up is on all accounts, he seems pretty talented, right? Like he can sing, he can dance, he's an entertainer. He seems very good at what he does. And certainly there's, there's a public appetite for what he does because he's successful, right? But he also did these horrible things. And yet we don't even have that conversation where it's like, it's either cancel him, right? Or it's like, ignore it. And it's like, where's the conversation that's like, this dude needs to be put into some kind of program or help so that he does not do something that will irreparably harm a woman as he probably already has done so for some women. You know, like where's the conversation around having that, that process in place so that men are supported? And I think that we need to have this conversation because otherwise we're going to continue this line of thinking that violence against women happens at the extreme end of the spectrum, but it doesn't happen anywhere else. And we don't, and, you know, and we, seemingly because we've made great strides towards gender equality that seemingly everything is fixed when it, I don't think it is fixed and I and I think um one only needs to ask the women in their lives you know this is men needs to ask the women in their lives like what are your experiences of inequality to hear that they're pretty vast and they manifest in different ways and we might even contribute to that. I might contribute to that with the women in my life, you know, because I grew up in the 1990s and 2000s and I'm, you know, conditioned by the society that I lived in then and even the society that I live in now where, you know, we have leaders who say things that are outwardly harmful to towards women and other groups and there's seemingly no repercussions. And so it's not, it's not possible to entirely remove ourselves from that and it requires a degree of self-reflection, awareness and work. And I think that... We're not doing that with men and boys enough so they don't know how to speak out. But I only think a few of them are worried about being cancelled. I think for most people, they just don't know where to start. Yeah, mm -hmm. I totally agree that like it does seem to be like, especially like you said, from men, men that, you know, violence against women, like, you know, it's just the extreme end of things, but we need to realise all the varying degrees as well and I think as well because I've spoke as I've spoken to people that are survivors of domestic violence and abuse is that men need to also realize what are some of the things that their mates say or do that could be like signs that you know they are a violent person because so often I hear like, you know, like say if like someone gets arrested or sentenced to prison for um, domestic violence or for murder of a woman, like their friends will be like, oh, I had no idea. You know, he just seemed like such a top bloke. You know, he was the nicest guy, rah, rah, rah. And I just feel like when I hear stuff like that, I just think like, was he though? Was he or was or, or was it he was just putting on a facade for you? Or was it there were signs, but you just didn't see the signs because you just think 
oh, if he's violent against women, you know, like he he doesn't, you know, harass women in the streets or anything, but that's so, you know, him making small comments that are really harmful, that's nothing. You know what I mean? So I feel like that definitely needs to be something that men need to realise. Like, you know, they need to realise the small signs that might not seem huge to them, but actually could be a contribution to something later down the track where they mm. are violent towards women. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the the spectrum of men's behaviour is so important, right? Like if, you know, we if there's a group of men and one or two of them are comfortable making jokes that demean women, right? Or, or, or they're comfortable in a, in a group setting harassing a woman, right? Or catcalling a woman. And all the men around them don't take an opportunity. And it doesn't have to be in the moment. You know, there is a, there's a really important, um, I think, uh, lesson here that we don't need to call out all behavior in the moment. Because often, you know, we have to, we have to account for male and, you know, male on male dynamics that, let's say we take the, you know, the quintessential Aussie scenario of being down at the pub and someone's had a bit too much to drink and then they're engaging in behaviour that uh, that is minimising women or harassing women or whatever the case may be. And another man decides to be a hero and intervene in the moment. He could potentially be putting himself at physical harm, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not necessarily um, going to be taken in the way that it's intended. Right, so there are opportunities to uh, to kind of uh, de-escalate that situation, ensure that the woman is safe, remove that man from the situation, and then address it the following day. You know, and I think that not not enough of this is occurring in society where men are really engaging with their peers to be like, "Hey, what's the standard that we accept in our friendship group of how we behave?" And what's the, you know, what kind of men do we want to be? Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So the other topic that I really want to discuss with you today is about your latest podcast that you're doing with Future Women and... Firstly, just I want to say big congratulations. I said this to you before we started the interview, but the way it is constructed is just incredible because not only does it tell personal stories of victims of domestic violence, family violence, it also is educational so then people can look out for the signs, whether it be in their own relationship or loved one's relationships. How was this decided like how like how did this conversation start between you and the team behind Future Women? Like, of how you're going to do this? Because obviously, a topic like this is very, very, very difficult to do because a lot of people listening to it could be triggered by certain topics and um, ways of talking about it. How was it decided that it's not only a person like share- people sharing personal experiences, but also an educational podcast as well? Firstly, I have to say, Demi, you're asking the most brilliant questions. Oh, thank These are phenomenal you. questions. You're asking brilliant questions. I have to, I have to definitely say that. Oh, uh, how was it decided that we would that we would do both? I think, from my perspective, you know, and reflecting on some of the earlier conversations we've had, mm. is that without education and without there's on the one hand there's awareness raising, right? And I think awareness raising is such a strange concept because it's like people are aware that things are bad or, or good, right? You know, people are aware that, you know, violence against women is bad. Like if you did a cross-section of society and said, oh, who condones violence against women? 
overwhelmingly most people would say that they don't right like 99 point something percent no one is going to be like actively saying oh yeah violence against women is totally fine like no one's going to say that right but they're not going to necessarily understand how their behavior in day-to-day life can potentially support the actions of perpetrators right so for me in terms of a podcast firstly i think podcasts are such a a beautiful medium you know, like that you can listen to them whenever you can, you can listen to them doing whatever people listening to this podcast now could be doing anything in their day-to-day lives. So I think from my perspective, it was like, let's get to people in the, in the platform that will feel, you know, most natural to them. Obviously this content is triggering for some people at times it was triggering for me, you know, in, in terms of recording, it was certainly triggering for the survivors who so openly shared their lived experience and their life uh it it seems it seems almost limiting to say their story because it's not a story for them you know when when the women were telling you know when they were talking to us about what they went through and when we interviewed them and they were telling us about attempts made on their life for example that's not a story you know they were they were having to relive that mentally and and put themselves in a very compromising and dangerous space so we had to ensure that we had supports in place for them to be able to make sure that they were looked after you know in terms of sharing that and speaking about what they have been put through and what they've endured and i think from my perspective it was so key that like we go beyond this idea of raising awareness and we go to using the power of human experience to be able to educate You know, I think awareness raising in and of itself only goes so far when we educate, you know, in a way that is not patronizing or condescending and does so from the perspective of, well, clearly if this is an issue of the magnitude that it is, then enough people in society aren't invested in it or know what they need to do in order for things to change or to shift. And so I think from my perspective, that was the sort of... uh, that was the sort of angle that I tried to to take and that we as a team tried to cultivate, that it was like, we're going in with this perspective of we're not the experts. I'm not an expert. None of the producers are experts. No one working on this podcast is an expert. But the people who have survived abuse and violence and the people who work in the space in the sector they are experts both from lived expertise and experience and from you know being a practitioner or a policymaker. and so it was like teach us because i think a lot of a lot of um a lot of content around this topic is often made by people assuming a certain degree of knowledge and i think that that is phenomenal when it comes to upskilling and training people who work in the space But I don't think that the average person who has 100 demands on their time is going to understand that particular level. So this is really a podcast that is aimed at everyday people living in Australia who hear about this issue or know about it or may have been, you know, experienced it either as survivors or as people concerned about their own behavior and think, well, what, you know, what can I do? What, what role do I play in society? And I think particularly now, because we're living in a time where we would all like to see greater government funding, greater government investment, greater like, you know, responsibility from business and elsewhere of like systemic kind of changes and shifts. But when they're not happening or they're happening at a pace that feels glacial, then what can we as individuals do? And that was really powerful to me. What is the individual responsibility? So you know, for example, in the first podcast, we discuss issues around love bombing, you know, what is love bombing? What does it look like? So what are the signs, the subtle signs and precursors that lead to, uh, to harms towards women, you know, we, and we meet Laura, a survivor, and she talks about her abusers pattern of, of abuse and how he uh, built her up you know, onto a pedestal only to devalue and dehumanize her. And then how she necessarily didn't see what was happening to her as abuse until someone from 1-800-RESPECT said to her, hey, you are in an abusive relationship. It is not your fault. And we are here to support you. 
And I think that's really important to understand because we often lay blame at the feet of victim survivors when it's really the abuser who should be held responsible and accountable for their choice to use violence. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was really key. It was like, we have to make it um, holistic and do, do justice by victim survivors, but we really also have to make sure that it's, um, it goes beyond this idea of like trauma porn or what, you know, tell us about the bad things that happened to you. Cause all true crime is essentially like that. It's like just mm -hmm. laying it yeah. out there. Whereas here it's like, this is hopefully educational. And I think for me, it means a lot to hear from someone like yourself um, that it is hitting the right marks. And I hope that the episodes we continue to make really do continue in that vein and, and help support a greater understanding of domestic abuse and family violence uh, in the Australian context and, and help educate people. Yeah. Well, it's the episode, the two, I've so far watched the two episodes, but by the time this is released, there'll be three, but they definitely have educated me so much and definitely have resonated with me because I have loved ones that have been in abusive relationships. And even though they may not have been in, physical abusive relationships so they taken not as seriously but it makes you realize like even if it's not physical they are still traumatizing they're still an abusive relationship and and yeah I really do appreciate that when you and the team created the podcast as you said it's not a true crime podcast it's not trauma porn which I did really really appreciate a lot and I do have to ask as well because as someone that has their own personal experience with domestic violence because of your sister, Nikki. How then did you take care of yourself during this process? Because I can imagine it would have been triggering hearing these people's stories, hearing these survivors' stories and you trying to not let, like, how, like I just, I'm just trying to imagine like what that must've been like for you because you yourself would have heard stories from Nikki I can was there any time when their stories like crossed over and you thought and you thought like oh my god that's kind of like what Nikki would would, would say oh, all the time Demi yeah all the time it was uh, like and there were experiences in you know when we when we heard from these women for me listening back it, it was sort of this really strange experience of wow, Nikki would have gone through similar mm. or the same. And what, it was strange because it was, it, there, there was obviously such deep sorrow when I heard that, but also a sense of hope that, you know, some of these survivors were able to leave abusive relationships. They are safe now or they feel safe now and they say that they feel safe now. So it was really, it was at times confronting, but ultimately inspiring and hopeful, you know? And I think one of the things for me is, and this is what makes me most sad, is uh, Nikki's life was taken from her. You know, often the way that we, that we frame domestic abuse and family violence, and particularly intimate partner homicide, mm -hmm. is, we, is this very abstract terms, you know? Like we say, like women lost, you know, women lose their lives, et cetera but they have their lives taken from them. They're killed. It's, it's, you know, it's quite often a deliberate act, you know, uh, or an escalating pattern of abuse that ends with murder. And so it was really, really like confronting at times. Uh, and I found that difficult. I found that really difficult, but also it was filled with this sense of hope. And I was always consistently inspired by these women who would tell stories of such um, harrowing experience and do so in such great detail, yet also with such humility and grace as to say that, like, this is what would help other people. You know, and survivors don't owe anyone anything. You know, if you've experienced what you have as a survivor, you don't owe anyone anything, right? So for them to so graciously share from such a place of trauma and pain and relive that, I think it's a, it's a genuine privilege. So that was not lost on me, right? That, um, that 
that they are doing that. And I think for, for everyone who listens to There's No Place Like Home, they will certainly feel that, or I hope that they feel that sense of gratitude to victim survivors who don't owe anyone anything, but are telling us where we as a society failed them so we don't fail others. And uh, you asked me about looking after myself. I think this was very much a case of like... Uh, do as I, what is it? Do as I say, not as I do. Because I don't think I did the best job at times. I think yeah. it's quite immersive and I wasn't necessarily as on top of all of my self-care practices. Um, I certainly gravitated towards some of the self-care practices that aren't necessarily the best. So for example, you know, ordering and eating an entire large pizza, comfort food, stuff like that. <laughs> when, really, when really a session with my psychologist would have been far more in order. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was... Uh, it was and is a process. Um, you know, we're still working on the podcast behind the scenes as each episode is, is rolled out. And it was a process where we collectively, the whole team, have to look after ourselves and check in with each other. And I think Future Women in particular and Jamila Rizvi and others who've worked on it, Sally Spicer is one of the producers and Ella Jackson as well. We've created a space with, of, of trust around each other. And we've created... Um, not you know an, an environment without hierarchy where we are working collectively with a shared vision and the shared vision is that victim survivors voices must be the center of the story you know so in working on this podcast it is essential that that you know their experience is told in the way that they want it to be told so for example a lot of podcasts and listeners may not know this but a lot of podcasts are often recorded in such a way that the subjects or the interviewees are interviewed and then that's it, right? And then they don't know how the edit's going to be. Mm. Here, victim survivors, and we made a conscious thing that we would include them at every stage of the process, oh, you know? Okay. So they, they hear everything before it goes out to the public, you know, because that is the kind of thing that I found when Nikki was murdered and news media would interview my family they would interview me or they would try to interview my parents. And my dad didn't want to speak to the media, but my mom, you know, did speak to the media. And then afterwards she would say things like, oh, they just took this little grab of me and I do wish they didn't put that out there. But all, all of a sudden that's, you know, on the national news. And there's that saying in media, if it bleeds, it leads, right? So it, it made the news. It wasn't like something buried off, you know, way into the corner. It was something that made news. And so my mom would feel heartbroken that not only has her only daughter been killed, now the media reporting is using her words in such a way that she feels disrespects the memory of her daughter or the meaning of what she was trying to say. And so there was a feeling of being used or abused or um, disrespected. And I think that here it was really important to the whole team that we do right by victim survivors because they don't fundamentally, they don't owe anyone anything. So it was like, if they're going to share their lived experience, then the very least that we can do is try to make it so that it is respectful. It is honest. It is authentic to how they want that to be told. And you all did that so, so well. And I definitely, just can see that there was just so many hours and revisions and just perf just making the episodes be the best that they could possibly be like it was it wasn't a half-assed job like when I listened to the episodes so I definitely would recommend Nasty Woman Club listeners to give the podcast a listen because it's just it's definitely something that's even though the podcasting landscape is so massive now these days, you know, there's like, a, there's a topic on everything and anything right now, but this podcast though is very, very, very different. And it does, it just does it in a way that like, I don't think any other podcast has before. So just, yeah, big congratulations on it because it's just brilliant. No, thank you, Demi. And you know, what's really cool is something that one of the producers sent to me mm. was that in the first week, the, um, the podcast that we've made actually cracked like the top hundred charts or something. Oh, yeah. And it, um, and it actually placed one spot above Kyle and Jackie O, which I thought was fantastic yes. because 
because Kyle is known for having his, you know, tantrums and and mm-hmm. really behaving in a way that is, is problematic. Given the size of his platform, he could really behave in a way where other men took a lead from his behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he doesn't always meet that threshold, I think, of what we'd want to see in terms of men who are in public life. Mm-hmm. And so having a podcast about domestic abuse and family violence that tries to, you know, tries to be um, kind of first person telling the story of, of someone while also being educational, placing just one above Kyle and Jackie O, in particular Kyle, I was just like, it's like a moment of quiet achievement. That if nothing else, like if no one listens yes. to this, if no one ever listens to this, I will feel happy. Like I could, I could die tomorrow and be like, yeah, I've, I did it. I did, yes. I did something good. Yes, I um, love it. Yes, yeah, yeah. Bit, bit of a slap in the face for Kyle. We love that. Yes. <laughs> 
Uh, my poor, my poor Nana and my poor Pop. Their farm has been flooded, and they were affected by the 2011 floods. And I remember going out to the farmhouse after the floods came through, and I don't think there's like the smell. I don't think people understand like the smell of the mud after mm. it's been like sitting there and it's been pushed through and you could just every single bit of dirt animal anything has been in that water and then it's just this thick thick mud the smell is just awful and just trying to get that out of houses and just the smallest of things yeah yeah so yeah. you could is... i yeah mm. flood yeah and you don't see like you can't see that through the television right you just mm. see like flooding and um and then some of the news reporting on that as well is like going for like almost making light of the situation. Like when they were showing a cow on top of a roof and it was like, haha, look, it's a cow on a roof. And it's like, no, a cow has actually found its way onto the roof to not die because mm-hmm. yeah, that the floodwaters are so high. Like the cow would rather be on land. Like um, so would everyone else who's on roofs. They would rather be on land. Um and yeah, the, it's the not funny. They don't want to be there. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like this strange voyeuristic thing that's happening. Um, yeah. Which has been uh, uh, kind of, uh, yeah, really, really disturbing and unsettling. Yeah. I've seen, because I've just been having to watch a lot of press conferences and stuff like that, and a lot of reportings. And it's so frustrating because these, the other day I was watching this reporter and he was standing in front of this flooded area and there was all these kids just on paddle boards in the flooded water. And the man's like, you know, trying to say like, oh, stay in your homes, you know, it's dangerous outside. And then he's like awkwardly being like, oh, but these kids here are oh, that there's, there's parents there. It's okay. These parents are there. But it's like so often I've seen this re- these reports of like, and footage of people in the floodwaters and dangerous, dangerous floodwaters that are like dark brown. You don't know what's in the water. Like there's animals that could be in there. There's, there could even be bodies because already nine people have died. You never know. There could be bodies in there. And yeah, it's just really frustrating seeing all this footage of people just having a good old time. Just, yeah, going kayaking, going boogie boarding, just stand up paddle boarding. It's just... I understand people are trying to use humor to get through this traumatic event because I myself Mm. definitely use humor. Like I love to create a good meme when there's like, you know, something frustrating happening, but I don't know. It's just, it's just, I just feel like it's a dangerous, dangerous thing to be just making fun of floodwaters. Like you can so easily be taken by them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm. That reminds me actually of something, a trend that I've seen sort of on TikTok. Mm. recently which also fits into this low light is that there are people who are using um nuclear bomb simulators on australian cities and they're like what would happen if say brisbane was nuked by russia or what would happen people in the uk are doing it what would happen if london was nuked and then they would take like the biggest size bomb in the simulator and then they would go through the scenario knowing full well that there is close to i could you know hand on heart say there is a zero percent chance that putin is going to drop a bomb a nuclear bomb on any australian city anytime Mm. soon we're not you know we're not involved in what is happening there in an active Mm. sense right so that is not going to happen and the novelty of it is sort of intriguing to people but it is also terrifying a lot of people particularly say in the uk for example where there are people terrified because they don't understand you know the Um, This is unlikely to occur, but there are people who are preying on fears and insecurities. And I just find that in the context of what's going on a little bit reckless, you know, and I'd watch those, I'd watch that first one, you know, about Melbourne. And I watched on with this kind of morbid curiosity and I watched the entire video and I thought about it and I was like, wow, nuclear bombs can do this. And then I thought about it more and I was like, man, I don't know. That's really, that makes me feel uncomfortable. That's, I don't think that's what we should be doing in this situation. Um, But what you were saying about the way that the reporting in Brisbane has been occurring and the way people are sort of showing it in this way, that's like making light of the situation. uh, I think that's happening with a lot of world events. And this is just one example of of that as well. Yeah. What are your highlights this week? I want to know what your highlights are. My highlights. Well, so a couple of weeks ago, my beautiful, uh, my beautiful dog Dolce passed away. I've had her for 15 years and 
that was just so so horrible and i'm so sorry thank you and i missed i just missed having just just this little thing just like following me i just it was just the house just felt so so quiet so my partner and i have been looking into fostering some animals because there are a lot of animals right now that need fostering especially in the brisbane area with the floodings and yeah we eventually we've uh been able to foster a puppy which has just been great Amazing. And he's just oh just the most beautiful little thing so yeah that's definitely been my highlight that's for sure yeah yeah my highlight was uh there's a few things mm -hmm. one is um one is you know the the flip side of the situation in ukraine and the, and the invasion by russia is seeing everyone band together and seeing particularly the footage that is coming out of ukraine so for example when you know there was some footage that that made news here in the west of of uh the some russian soldiers asking ukrainian soldiers to drop arms otherwise they that you know that they were going to attack and they told them to go fuck themselves yes. that was I, I don't know it feels uncomfortable saying that was a highlight but it genuinely was because it was just like wow you know they're really like they're not giving in easily they're not mm -hmm. surrendering um another and, highlight in that and they vein, survived i just found out they today survived they, yeah they survived. they survived oh that yeah. makes me so happy and another highlight for me is um is seeing in the context of this invasion that president Zelensky of ukraine when he was asked to um you know when he was asked or rather told by President Biden that we have a way to get you out safely, knowing that he is the number one target, really, mm -hmm. so that they can take over Kiev, the capital, and then take over Ukraine. When he said, I don't need a ride, I need anti-tank ammunition, and then he put on a bulletproof vest and held a rifle, and I'd, obviously neither one of us condones violence whatsoever, mm -hmm. but the idea of a head of state actually fighting for their country that has not happened in many, many generations. There are, you know, war is often young people dying because of old men's power and greed. Yep. Right? Uh -huh. And so and so, seeing a leader of a country alongside his or her or their citizens taking the fight, that, that to me really spoke volumes about integrity of character and leadership. You know, and that's why it's a highlight. It's not the act of of being in in the war because war is horrible, but it's the the act of of saying I'm not going to abandon those people who look to me for leadership. And you know, I can't see leaders in other countries doing anything remotely like that. I can't see leaders in our country doing anything like that, Demi. That they would actually stand side by side with their country people if shit hit the fan. You know, uh, and that, that them doing that. They would just go to Hawaii. Yeah, touche. <laughs> so I think, uh, I think that really spoke volumes to me around uh, around the situation in Ukraine, and and was sort of a it's not a silver lining, but was sort of a reminder about how people really do care. You know, and there are leaders who care as well. You know, often I think in Australia we look um, we look further afield to New Zealand in, in one of our closest neighbours to see a leader who genuinely appears to care about the people and about the, the progress of the nation and um, some of the nation's most disadvantaged groups. So I think that, you know, that was a reminder that there are good leaders out there and that there are people in positions of power who do care. We, and we don't always get that reminder here in Australia. So I think that was nice. The other highlight for me was really the launch of the podcast. The launch of the podcast, there was... Uh, you know, a lot of media around that, a lot of uptake around that, <clears throat> around that. And I think for me, that that experience was really positive, that that um, people responded to the podcast well. And we've put in, as a, as a team, you know, hours and hours and hours of work. And, and just uh, having that... Uh, having that received in the way that it has been intended has been really positive. You know, that is a definite highlight for me. Um, and then the other highlight was I, I went to Sydney for the podcast, uh, you know, I spent a couple of days up there. And when I got back, my dog Habibi, like just bolted 
to the front door. As soon as I opened the door, she ran from the living room straight up to give me a cuddle. And every time I step outside, even if it's just to go to the supermarket and come back, she will always bolt down the hallway and just, you know, want to give me all the, all the cuddles, all the licks. And it's just like, yeah, it's just a reminder of living in the present and that, you know, no matter what happens, uh, dogs are incredible and amazing yes. and we love them. And so for me, yeah, that like that's probably my highlight all the time every week yeah. is just the unconditional love of, of the pet family member or members. Yeah, pets just honestly, they just make make every day, make every week just like 10 times better just with their beautiful face. And they just, I think it's because they just look at us like we're like this godlike thing that has just yeah. like made their life 10 times more amazing it's just like no you don't realize you make my life more amazing it's just oh yeah. it's just beautiful yeah, yeah. they really well, do yeah well big big thank you for coming on to today's podcast i've been wanting to talk to you for so so long and i'm so glad i finally had the guts to message you and be like come on the show so no thank you thank you for reaching out it's yeah it's been such a pleasure talking to you and thank you so much for having me and i hope that everything is safe in brisbane for you and your loved ones it's horrible what's happening there and um yeah from melbourne certainly my thoughts are with you all thank you so much Thank you everyone so much for tuning into today's episode of the Nasty Woman Club podcast. Before you do anything, before you click pause and go on to your next show, highly, highly recommend that you all check out Terang's latest podcast with future women called There's No Place Like Home. I did speak highly of it in the episode interview, but that is not enough. It's it's far, far more incredible educational and eye-opening than I could ever put into words and Chang and his team have just done an incredible job putting this together so I would highly recommend you go check it out available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts do it immediately and if you're not already please be sure to follow my guests on their Instagram page I will make sure to leave Terang's Instagram handle in the show notes Anyway, that is it for today's episode of the Nasty Woman Club podcast. I greatly appreciate you all for tuning in and I will see you all next week. I'm your host, Demi Lynch. Stay nasty, everyone. We at the Nasty Woman Club pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the Mianjin land. We acknowledge that we are on the stolen lands of the Yarraga and Turbul people, whose sovereignty was never ceded. This land is and always will be Aboriginal land.